The text we're looking at this morning is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. We are continuing in what we're doing in the letter to the Romans. And this is very appropriate for this morning because basically when we turn the page, so to speak, from Romans 11 to Romans 12, we are looking at another subset, sub-series of the book of Romans. Remember when I said the book of Romans was all about? Paul's laying out the gospel. He's laying out the gospel because at heart he's a missionary, and this is like his missionary letter. So instead of him as a missionary writing it to Harley Wood and Al Anderson and Ken Schumacher and Jan Murray and the entire missions committee, Paul is writing his missionary letter, seeking support, seeking gospel partnership. He's writing it to the church, to the congregation in Rome. And he's doing it for a reason. He is wanting to change his base of operations from Antioch by the Mediterranean Sea over to Rome, the cosmopolitan, the capital city of the empire, because he wants to take the gospel everywhere the gospel has not been preached. He is a missionary at heart. And so what he's doing is he's laying out his outline of the gospel. And so the first four chapters, he gave a vision for the gospel. Then he moved on and he shared about life in the gospel. Then he shared about how God is forming a people, a beautiful community, one yet diverse. And now, chapters 12 through 16, he is talking about the implications of the gospel. What trajectory does the gospel take? It's basically, if you want to look at chapters 12 through 16, it is an outline of the Christian life. And so we're beginning this morning to look at that. And so if you have your bulletins open, your insert open, let's hear the word of God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. And Paul begins, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same functions, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Well, it's been a week. Y'all know how profound an influence Tim Keller had on me, and I shared some of that last week. And it's been a week since he went home to be with the Lord. And in the past week, I have read many, many tributes honoring him. And these tributes have emphasized several different things. They've spoken, for example, of his profound relationship to God his understanding of and communication of the gospel, and that even though, if you knew him, some tributes spoke about this, he was actually a pretty introverted man who didn't like things like small talk, yet he could always make time for people. He was always so humble, always kind. He did not, he never thought of himself as a celebrity or as famous in any manner. I've also been impressed and how so many of the tributes have come from media app outlets that we could, in a sense, say are all over the spectrum, all over the political spectrum. Just to list a few, he has received tributes from the Wall Street Journal, 
Fox News, CNN, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and MSNBC. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that is pretty unique. To be able to be lauded by like that from both the right and the left. Tim Keller had a unique relationship to the world. Now, Paul, I said, is talking about, and he's introducing us. This is an introduction. He is talking about, and he's laying out the Christian life, the implications that flow from the gospel. And they all have to do with one thing, relationships. All of life is essentially relational. And here's why I say that. Because God, who created everything, think about the words, in the beginning, God. You've all memorized scripture now. Four words. Those are the first four words of the scripture. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Who is this God? This God is one God who exists in three different persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call that Trinity. The triune, tripersonal God. Now this God, if we believe he is eternal, self-existent, has absolutely no needs. He's complete. He's sufficient within himself. So what does that teach us? That teaches us that this God essentially is relational. And then he created us. And if we're made in his image, by virtue of being human, we are relational. Now the gospel that Paul has spent 11 chapters expounding and laying out is about God forming a family, God forming a people for himself. One worldwide family, a new way of being human. God is forming in himself, in Christ, a renewed humanity designed to display and reveal a new sort of human life that the church lives amongst ourselves and before the world. And that means it's all about relationships. So what does this new humanity look like? It looks like relationships. And that's the outline of the passage. We're going to look at our foundational relationship to God, our relationship to one another, and our relationship to the world. This introduces that, and then the rest of chapters 12 through 16, by the way, basically is laying out the rest of that. What did I, so if the smell of brats and burgers gets to you too much, guess what? We come back to this in future weeks. <laughs> I'm hopeful you stay awake, but you know, if you drift off a little bit, We'll be coming back to this. First of all, look at verse 1. A new relationship to God. Paul begins with an appeal. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, or brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And he says, this is your spiritual worship. So here's Paul. He's making an appeal. And we spoke of this last week in reference to worship. So I'll be fairly brief here. But this is the foundation. The foundation is our relationship to God. And that means the foundation is that we are not our own. We do not belong to ourselves. See, here is the principle. We are not our own. We belong to God. That means we don't belong to ourselves. It's not up to us 
to live autonomously or to autonomously live our lives for ourselves, our pleasures, our goals, our preferences, our ambitions. We belong to God. God owns us by virtue of creation. He is the creator. We are his creature. So even the non-Christian is not autonomous. The non-believer does not belong to himself. He may not be aware that he is a creature of God. But God owns us also by virtue of redemption. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. And do you know what that price is? That price is the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, and this is part of what it means by the mercies of God. That part of when Jesus died on the cross, he was purchasing you so that you could belong to him and his family. So friends, do you think if he bought you with his very own life, he could ever lose you? He paid the ransom price of his life so that he would never lose you. So let me ask you this question. Do you see the fact that you are not your own? You're not responsible for your life, ultimately. You are God's. Do you see that as a mercy to you? I hope so. It is part of a new way of being human. It is a part of God's mission that the church displays before the world how to be human, how to relate to God, others, and the world. Alan Noble is a writer who lives in Oklahoma, and I would highly recommend his book. It's called You Are Not Your Own. And here's what he says in it. He says, we are not free to pursue whatever brings us the most personal fulfillment. We're not free to define our identity in any way we wish. We are not free to use people or creation as tools for our own ends. We are limited. See, in Christ we are free, but that freedom is not a freedom to do whatever you want. That is not a freedom to be autonomous. That is not a, an absence of limitations. Freedom does not mean no limits. We're limited by creation, and thus redemption does not mean not having limits. Rather, our freedom is a freedom for, and a freedom to. It's a freedom for love of God, and love of others, and love of the world. And it's a freedom to be what God designed you to be. He built you for love. And he set you free to be human. Too often, we want freedom to be, I do whatever I want. I have no limits. So, foundation relationship with God. Present your bodies as living sacrifice means we are not our own. We put everything at God's disposal for him to use. The foundation of the Christian life is our relationship to God. But now look with me at verse 3, a new relationship to the church. And the principle here is we are not our own, we belong to one another. You're not free from one another. You are, in a sense, your brother and sister's keeper. Paul writes, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, 
though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Paul begins by saying that if you're going to relate well to others, it begins by relating rightly to yourself. Understanding yourself correctly. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, here's his instruction, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. How we view ourselves is key. And Paul says, you're not to think of yourself either too highly or too lowly of yourself. So it's not about self-image, but it's also not about self-hatred and self-contempt. He says, rather, think of yourself with sober judgment. And that word there, sobriety, means exactly what you would think it means, the opposite of drunkenness. It means to be rigorously accurate in our thinking about ourselves, to have an accurate knowledge of ourselves, not too high or not too low. I know I've had many times in my life where I've thought either too high or too low of myself. I've had times where I thought too much either of my own giftedness, my own abilities, my own experience, and there have been other times, maybe even more for me personally, where I've lacked confidence, thinking I couldn't do something. I'll give you one example. When I was going into junior high school, yes, I'm that old, they didn't have middle school back then. It was called junior high school, seventh grade. I was actually a pretty good baseball player. I played Little League, and I made it to the All-Star team, the team that was competing to go to the Little League World Series. Now, we didn't make it, but we went pretty far. And so when that summer was over and we went into junior high school and it came for spring tryouts for the baseball team, everybody expected me to try out for the baseball team. All my friends from the all-star team, they went out. All, they all didn't. They all did, but I didn't. Deep down, I was afraid. I was afraid of not being good enough. I was afraid of getting cut. I was afraid of failure. I thought too lowly of myself. Now, the coach asked me, and I made some sort of excuse, but the truth is I was afraid of failing. I did not have an accurate knowledge of myself. In that way, my thinking was drunk. It wasn't sober. I didn't have a right thinking of myself. Now, I could give you many other examples of times I also thought too highly of myself. Paul says we are to think of ourselves accurately. Now, how do we do that? How do we think accurately about ourselves? Well, the first thing he says is that we're to do so according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What does that mean? View myself according to the measure of faith that he has assigned. The Greek word there, and I don't always quote Greek words, but it's important here, is the word metron, which means measurement. But immediately we think of measurement and we think of amount of faith. But that's not what the word means here. Here it means standard of measurement. It's a measurement, but it's your standard of measurement. And the standard of measurement here is that every Christian has been given faith in Christ, and you measure yourself according to the gospel, according to the saving faith that you've been given in Christ. And according to the gospel, it says you are loved, you are accepted. 
You are given worth by Christ. You are declared righteous in Christ. And God wants to use you in His kingdom mission. Then look at verses 4 and 5. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Look where he says, Our unity. One body. In a sense, we are all the same. So much of the rest of the letter will be spelling out the implications of that unity. What does that mean for relating to people who are different from us? Relating to people who are weaker, who are stronger, who are different in their background. Here he's saying, here's where it begins. We are all the same. In Christ, we are one family. We are one household. We are one body. Regardless of background, regardless of race, regardless of ability, regardless of heritage, we are loved equally in Christ. This is why God's church is a beloved community, a beautiful community. But then he says, and don't we have a wonderful creator, God? Because then he says, we're all different. Look at this. He says, but the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So you have fundamental unity alongside individual uniqueness. It's like Paul says to the Ephesians, for we are God's workmanship. And I love that word. Workmanship is the Greek word poema from which we get our English word poem. Have an accurate view of yourself. Do you recognize your God's poem? That he's a divine poet and he creatively made you as his poem for you to put that poem at his disposal. You're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, bought by Christ Jesus, by the mercies of God for good works, good works that God has prepared. He's laid out beforehand for us to walk in him. I love how the writer, the writer of Out of Africa, Isaac Dennison, put it when she said pride, in other words, good pride is faith in the idea God had when he made you. An accurate knowledge of yourself, not too high, but not too low, is faith in the idea God had when he made you. Tim Keller puts it, we've each been given distinct personalities and temperaments and histories and abilities that equip us for doing a particular set of good works in the world that God has created us to do. So get to work in ministry. Get busy. Find out what God has equipped you to do best and do it with all your might. Verses 6 and following that we'll begin to get into next week talk about some of the various functions, the various ways that we can put how God has created us, how God has, we can put that poem at his disposal. But again, the principle is there. We are not our own. You do not belong to yourself. Your gifts do not belong to you. Your gifts are there to build up and for the betterment of God's people, His church, His kingdom. And so our relationship to one another begins with the fact that we need each other, that we are interdependent. If you watch a sports team, I'll mention one I enjoy watching. They're that team from up north, the New York Yankees. 
They won yesterday, I will tell you this, three to two in walk-off fashion by someone who is basically a substitute on the team. His name is Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, so he doesn't start every day, doesn't play every day, but he has such a great heart and a great attitude, he does his best when he gets in there. And they interviewed him after the game and asked him how he felt. And he said, we need everybody. Everybody on this team is important. Friends, that's a good picture. He was speaking about the team, but he's stealing his truth from the church there, from God a little bit. Because here's the truth. Here's what it means to be a new sort of human that Jesus has died and risen for. It means that you're not independent, you're not codependent, you are interdependent. Whether you like the person sitting next to you or not, you belong to them. That is real. I'm glad to see some of you are saying, yes, I do like you. <laughs> but here is the truth. You belong to one another. So what is the Christian life? You belong to God, you belong to each other, but did you realize you also belong to the world? You hear me quote this all the time. The church is the only organization, the only institution created by God that exists for the sole sake of its non-members. We're out here this morning because it's good for Lake Oconee. We're out here this morning fundamentally because we exist for Lake Oconee and the world. Now look how Paul puts it here. This is just the introduction to it. Go back to verse 2 where he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, here's the principle. We are not our own. We belong to the world. We've been given by God for the life of the world. And what is our new relationship to the world? It is fundamentally countercultural to be a contrast society. That is, we are to be a new sort of human, a new sort of humanity, a community or society that displays to the world a contrasting way of thinking, living, doing, and acting. See, the world has one way of thinking, doing, being, living, and active. It has patterns. It has values. Some of its values are power, control, approval, all of these, we are to identify those patterns and not be conformed to it, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind, which is not just what to think, but how to think. Let me try to illustrate it this way. What does it look like to be countercultural? Sorry for all the sports illustrations, but it's what I came up with this week. I remember growing up loving, watching, and playing the sport of basketball. And I remember our coach always telling us, you need to practice your free throws. And he would say that because there you are 15 feet away from the basket and nobody's guarding you. You shoot, you make a basket, and it's a free point. Nobody can block it, nobody can do anything. It is a free throw. And he would say, I don't understand people not practicing and doing that. And yet, I'd go home and I'd watch my TV and I'd watch college ball and I'd watch pro ball and I'm going, See, they're all missing their shots. <laughs> kind of doesn't make sense. They shoot and clank off the rim and it's doing this. And I'm going, didn't they listen to my coach practice? 
And they're all doing it. They're conforming. They all do it the same way. Except for one person. Now, if you're younger, you may not have heard of him. If you're my age, you'll, you may remember him if you followed basketball. His name was Rick Barry. Anybody ever hear the basketball player, Rick Barry? Okay, good. I'm, at least one hand encouraging me. I'll, I'll buy you a brat later. <laughs> Rick Barry played, and he'd get up there, and he did this. He shot underhanded. And he never missed. I'm watching, and in fact, I rooted for the Knicks, and guess what? He never played for the Knicks. And I'm yelling at the Knicks, going, don't foul Rick Barry, because he never misses his shot. Rick Barry, instead of being conformed to how everybody else did it, was transformed by a new way of shooting free throws. He was counter-cultural. And we need to learn to be counter-cultural in the way we do things. And here's the grace. You go, how in the world do we do that? We do it by the Spirit. Part of the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, do you recognize that part of God's mercy, when Jesus was preparing his disciples to leave this earth physically, he said to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, of course, can you imagine? There's Peter, James, John, Thomas, all Matthew. They're all, what, wait a second. You will leave us and you will come? What in the world does that mean? Now, they found out a little bit later, and I don't know if you knew what today is on the church calendar. Today is the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost symbolizes and remembers when God pours out his spirit upon his church to make the wonders of God known. And the spirit of God is part of the mercies of God. So when we present ourselves, we're doing so by the mercies of God. Do you recognize when I ask you, put yourself at God's disposal to be used by him? You never do that on your own. You do that guided, empowered, and enabled by the power of the spirit. And one of the reasons that Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, is symbolized by the color red. Y'all didn't know that when I was up on the scissor lift. I didn't just say, let's turn it red for no reason. I did that because I knew the day of Pentecost was coming. And the color for the day of Pentecost is red. And it does so because it's symbolizing the fiery tongues that came upon the people of God, the purpose of which was to empower them to make known the wonders of God in other languages, in a way that is understandable to them, in a way that connects with them, in a way that's relatable to them. In a sense, this is why we're outside today. Even in physical ways, like the updating of our facilities, what are we doing? We are wanting to be filled with the Spirit to make the wonders of God's salvation known in a way that is relatable and understandable to Lake Oconee, in a way that connects. Because we do not live for ourselves. We are not our own. We belong for the life of the world. We don't live for our preferences. We live for others. We live in this age with the power of the age to come. Jesus has not left us as orphans. He says he has come to us. And of course, the ultimate example of what this looks like is Jesus. 
Being transformed by the renewing of our mind, not being conformed to the pattern of the world, means being conformed to the pattern of Jesus. What was the pattern of Jesus? What is the ultimate mercy of God? And again, I have to quote Tim Keller, who says, because Jesus was the king who became a servant, we see a reversal of values in his kingdom administration. In Jesus' kingdom, the poor, the sorrowful, and persecuted are above the rich, the recognized, and the satisfied. The first shall be last. Why would this be? This reversal is a way of imitating the pattern of Christ's salvation. That on the cross, though Jesus was rich, he became poor. Though he was a king, he didn't come to be served, he came to serve. Though he was the greatest, he made himself a servant of all. He triumphed over sin, not by taking up power, but by giving power away and serving sacrificially. He won through losing everything. This is a complete reversal of the world's thinking, a complete countercultural, which values power, recognition, wealth, status. The gospel then creates a new kind of servant community with people who live out an entirely alternate way of being human. Racial and class superiority, accrual of money and power at the expense of others, yearning for popularity and recognition, all are marks of being conformed to the world. They represent the opposite of the gospel mindset. That's what it means to relate to the world, to be a contrast society. And what the Christian life looks like is learning how to be formed in that kind of community. That's why we do small groups. That's why we do learning communities. That's why we worship. Everything we do is to learn how to be that contrast society, to display to Lake Oconee and to the world a new way of being human, a new way of being free. That's what God's mercy drives us to. That's what God's mercy is for. A gospel way of being human, a way modeled after Christ. Let's pray.